Hello and welcome to episode 110 of Africa Past and Present, the podcast about African history, culture, and politics. This interview is part of a series we're doing with the African Studies Association and was recorded at their 59th annual meeting in Washington, D.C. Welcome to the inaugural African Studies Association podcasts from the ASA annual meeting in Washington, D.C., brought to you by ASA and by the Africa Past and Present series of Michigan State University. I'm Peter Lim. And I'm Peter Alecci. Our special guest is Professor John Mugane, the director of the African Language Program in the Department of African and African American Studies at Harvard University. He is a linguist specializing in African languages. His full title is Professor of the Practice of African Languages and Cultures. Professor Mugane's research interests include Bantu linguistics, African languages, computer-mediated language instruction, grammar documentation, and pedagogy. His most recent book is The Story of Swahili, published by Ohio University Press in 2015. Professor Mugane's current projects include the African Sources of Knowledge Digital Library and the Enhanced Language Instruction for African Studies. Welcome, Professor Mugane. Thank you. Glad to be here. In your recent book, The Story of Swahili, you argue that Swahili is an adaptive, constantly evolving, complex language of a cosmopolitan people. You show very nicely how Swahili has long been linked to trade and politics on the East African coast and in the Indian Ocean network. I think you mentioned that the first written reference to Swahili came in 1331 by the great Moroccan traveler and scholar Ibn Battuta. Mm -hmm. And of course, the language changed under European colonialism and later with independence. So why have the questions of who is Swahili and what is authentic or pure Swahili, perhaps, endured over time? It's a great question. Um, The story of Swahili is one that has a lot of people involved. And the reason I wrote the book was to give the inland side of the story. So there is the overseas side of Swahili, which means the people concentrate on the other side of the Indian Ocean. So it would be at the Arab lands, India, the subcontinent of India, and Africa is, is left out of the picture. But when you look at it, um, Africa is, is really one of the reasons why there was actually the, the Indian Ocean trade because it was bringing things to Africa and taking a lot of things from Africa. So when this question about who is Swahili and who wasn't was not asked in a long time. People are either part different groups of people in Africa itself. Some were part Arabic because when the Arab uh, traders came to East Africa, they stayed there and intermarried with people there. Many of the marriages were about strategy of staying. So an Arab would come and marry one of the daughters of the local leaders and then the child then happened to be a prince who is now part Arabic and part African, and then it went on like that. And fast-forwarding out, out of all those centuries, you find a time in which people are now saying the Swahili civilization, the, meaning the coastal civilization, was very different from the inland. And therefore, now the question then, who is the builder of this civilization? Is it, the, is it, an, Afri- is it an African civilization, or is it an Indian civilization or is it a, a, an Arab civilization? And basically, the first authors were saying it is a shipwrecked type civilization that is uh, looking to its homeland, which is somewhere out there in the in the Hatramount, the, the Arab world and so on. 
And therefore, when they're looking at this language, they find all the things that I say in the book, the, the literature, they find um, and literature that is very, very rich, for instance, with, with complete tale, I mean, big, big poet, poet, you know, epics, lots of uh, adaptive uh, cultures there, you know, managing to even maintain diplomacy with each other and with foreign powers and so on. Uh, they say this is not an African civilization. So the whole idea of asking who is Swahili, it is to try to confirm what they actually wanted to see, that, that those who wrote before that, you know, it is really an Arab civilization. It's something that is not from the inland Africa. It is something that is actually perpetrated from outside. And, and there was plenty of evidence to see that, that they built the cities. They look exactly like the, the Arab cities where you have buildings built in a certain way, you know, and, and then all of a sudden down the road there are lots of, lots of the Swahili are Muslims. And therefore it's all pointing to that. And then uh, the people who are the elite society in Swahili land were, were often some of the Arab rulers and their children and so on. It's, I mean, by the time Said Said comes and he has 200 children, uh, all of those half Arab and, and half African and, and so on. It was said, now, so these people are the ones that when the first Europeans came and asked this question and looked, they said the Swahili are really um, mixed. They are part Arab and, and part African and so on. But the story of Swahili that I wrote was now to, look, to use language as the probe to actually look at uh, why is it that if Swahili is really um, sourced from outside, why doesn't the language itself reveal those things? And you look at Swahili, it's very deceptive. It will tell you, like, there's a lot of Arabic words. So you say, this is an Arabic language. It's 30%, 40%, some people say 60%. But all of it depends on what you look. So if you look at the province of religion, lots of words there are Arabic. Mm. If you look at uh, navigation and other things like that, um, administrative terminology, you know, when you think of provinces and so on, all of this is very Arabic and sourced from outside. But when you move from that and you actually now go to actual um, things that you'd expect people are living their daily notions about, say, agriculture, uh, how people relate with each other, anthropological issues like how do we do people name each other, how, how are they relating with each other, you realize all that vocabulary is actually African and not just African locally. It's not, Swahili is not based on the Bantu languages near the coast. It was actually based, according to Guthrie, who looked at the lexicon and all the other Malcolm Guthrie, a very famous linguist then. Mm. Um, when he looked at this vocabulary, he discovered that Swahili resembles the, lang the Bantu languages of Central Africa, back there in, in, in Rwanda and, and, and Zambia, in fact, Zambia. And so he's saying that it looks very much like the core languages here. It turns out then that's the story whereby most of the people who came to be coastal people uh, were coming from up there. From, from there, either brought in as slaves, as, as traders, and other, and other people like that. So the whole notion of looking for a person and a language is really a 19th century notion of European identities, of saying every, every nation has, uh, you can define people you know, by ethnicity, and it has to be one, and we can determine who they are. So it goes back to that kind of politics. But in Kenya, it became a very big thing in the colonial times. It was also exploited by the Swahilis, saying we're not African. Therefore, we don't need to do the past laws and other things. So it, it goes to that kind of history too. But most Swahili will ask you, why is it that you keep asking this question? Because a lot of people have gone to us who are the Swahili, and they say, you see all of us in front of you, but yet you can't pick out a Swahili out of the whole group because, you know, we are, the evidence is in front of you. So why do you want to define, to define us? Because when you try to define, you find somebody is giving you a list of relatives who are fathers all the way to the uh, holy lands of Islam. And then they are, but their mothers are not being given. 
that's the Arabic way of doing things. You ask on the other side of the African, and in African side, they're looking at the mother side because in Swahili culture, the mother was really, the Bantu side, she was the leader of the family and so on. So mothers are not named like that. So you'd, mothers disappear in the genealogies of, of naming. That's why most of people will be saying Swahili is, is, is a Bantu language. I mean, it's not a Bantu language, it's Arabic. But now linguistics is a problem to that kind of thesis, and it was disproved long ago. It is not. But there's one, one thing about the contact is that Swahili lost tone. The tone it's, Bantu languages are tonal languages. So, we, so Bant, Swahili lost that, that aspect, and therefore, um, and it's explained in my story, I'm explaining that when you're, the way people learn languages when you're trying to, to trade with others is not really to be correct about something is to get the job done, it's trading done and so on. So tone, as you know, always brings problems. You know, if you have to say one word in different ways mm-hmm. and you're meaning different things, then the best thing to do if I'm buying something from you, if I say bread one way, you're saying, no, I didn't say give me a bread. I mean, I mean give me a loaf of bread. I'm actually telling you uh, give me a shoe or whatever it is, but just because bread was said in a different way, then that gets re- it gets gets lost, you know, in the whole thing. And then they just decide, okay, now you're not going to do that. We're going to just not have tone. But that's one way that tone would have been lost because it complicates communication too much in a place where it's just egalitarian and cosmopolitan. People are just trying to get things going. Mm. And yeah. You mentioned the mother angle and uh, another side of the story which you tell so well in the book is, is, is the women of Swahili. And I wonder if you yeah. could um, talk a little, please, to the, to the listeners about this, this angle, about... Uh, the women of Swahili and their roles, and you, you mentioned the, the famous uh, singer Siti Binti Saad Siti and her Saad. songs, yeah. and sort of that's a, another interesting angle about a language and not so much yeah. the, the meaning of the tone but the, the singing of languages. And, and also this, this talks perhaps also to the, um, not just the gendered aspect with, 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 with um, women like Siti Binti Saad, but also the, the popularization of a language. Yes, the women um, of Swahili, and I call them, I made, I made the note that I call them not Swahili women, but the women of Swahili. Mm. Again, to move away from this whole idea of identity, that there is an identity right. thing, that there is somebody who is Swahili or something else, because the women of Swahili are women who are, um, they are not. They, they are coming from all kinds of places and and so on. But the big thing about the women of Swahili, and it was difficult to write about them, by the way, because you stand accused. I stand accused of not putting them through the book. I give them a chapter. When I try to write them through the story from every step and so on, they were disappearing. And, you know, their story was not coming out strong. So the whole idea of a chapter is to do that. But um, the women are really the custodians of. Swahili knowledge. So when you're looking at the big literary tradition, and when you're looking at the memory that we have in Swahili, uh, the way uh, people have been thinking about Swahili and the knowledge that is behind Swahili is really born by women. And the reason is that basically in, in, uh, in Swahili terminology and even in Arabic terminology, children are walad mama. Walad mama means a child belongs to the mother. Mm. And so the mother is actually teaching this child things that they came with from inland Africa, even though the child is being, is being raised as a Muslim, of course, and so on, in those lullaby songs and so on, the songs being sung by these mothers and so on are coming from central, from inland Africa. And there is, so then, because of that, then you see that the children are raised a certain way, and the women themselves, a lot of them came again in very different descriptions. There are some that are born, that are coming in as freeborn. 
many of them were what you call surias. They are, they are slaves, but taken in as, as mistresses by the, the, the ruling class. Most of them Arab men and Arab gentlemen and so on. But Arab here meaning somebody who is decided that's what they are. Because the whole idea of identity mm-hmm. of Swahili is you go there, you make a choice and say, from now on I'm Swahili. And there's a naturalization process. There was a, uh, there was a way they actually took the receipt and called you Swahili. But that doesn't mean you're not Swahili. It just meant basically that. Um, and that's what one of those people asked where, who is a Swahili was saying, everybody is something else. And then we are all Swahili and so on. So the, the, the Swahili moms are the ones who are, keeping records of the, of, of, the, of the poetry, they're actually not just keeping the record, they're the interpreters of this poetry. So when Europeans are coming to gather this, this uh, poetry, they're hearing from the women and the meanings are being told to them like that. And their situations are different. So they had very different lifestyles. So if you are from the rich families and you're where, you know, then you can actually expect to be sequestered in a place and you're wearing a hijab and therefore you're living in that kind of life. And then there are those others who will be Muslims where they're farming every day, they're moving around and so on. But the biggest thing about them is the human relations that you see between people and contact. Because the women are, the, are, the, are sort of like the reception. When you go to these societies, not just the reception that they're actually consorting with sailors that are coming in and all the other stuff, but just basically the way you find your way of living there. So there are many, many stories between uh, where women are actually telling foreigners that they have, like one of the stories about uh, there was an uprising in Mombasa, and the Mombasans had decided they are going to kill every every missionary over there. And then um, the, the women actually find their stories, and, and they find their friends, and they sing them a song, and they send a song, and somehow uh, this person figures out what's going on. And So you can see a lot of caring relationships, even though there was all these this fights, and so there's a very human aspect of the story that when you look at women, because... There is that, and then there is every every person who came from outside and said they learned Swahili, they were saying it's the women who taught them. It was not anybody else. So when you come to Siti Bindisad, Siti Bindisad is the ultimate nice story of anybody, anywhere in the world. She's born a slave. She's actually called a slave. That was her name. Um, said she didn't have any good looks, and but she had a voice, and so she started singing. And she did not just sing in Swahili. She was singing in Hindi. She was singing in other languages out there. And she was singing witty things. She was, it was not just... You know, for entertainment, you're singing, uh, you know, very interesting things about uh, about life and uh, advising people and so on. And she moved from being a slave because of her voice and she's invited to the palace where she would actually sing. Beyond that, she went to India and recorded these big albums and so on. And everybody was singing in Swahili all over the place. But she was from a slave element and grew up to be a singer who has not been surpassed to this day. Then the others that you see there, like the one who wrote one poem called Mona Kupona, who is... Uh, was advising, the only poem she ever wrote, she was advising her daughter on how to actually sort of make it through that society in terms of the fact that you have a lot of restrictions in, in certain, if you're going to be, a, to be a person of high society, you have to live under certain restrictions. And she was teaching her how to actually go through all that, how to behave, you know, and how to actually treat the husband, you know, how to actually decide when it is enough and other things like that. So very, very educa- educative thing. But we don't have a model I mean, be better models of, of art than the one by Monagopona, by that, by that lady and city, yes, city Binisad. Uh, these are just standing monuments by themselves. But, and so the one of the intriguing things about Swahili is that when you see women producing those kinds of works, but there's only one. Of course, history doesn't tell me that they began that time. They must have been writing a lot of things. And therefore, when you are finding, if the only instance you find of writing is so advanced and beautiful, then you know they have been going on for a very long time doing this. But their, their big thing is that to this day, 
Yeah, the same ones will actually do the do the education of initiating children from one adult, from one age to another. They are the same ones who are also connected to inland Africa. So if there is a problem, sometimes I was talking about the way these places will be raided and everybody's being killed. The Swahili just immediately just vanish into the inland. And then when the Portuguese are done their thing and they're tired, they come back and all the other stuff. Getting into East Africa, for instance, from the from the coast with the slaves and all the other stuff, it's the women who are the who are the advance guard. You know, when the caravans are coming, the women would leave a day or two before. They would go inland, pacify those communities because in in Africa at least to this day, um, if a woman puts a child on her back and ties her and ties her children on her back, they can walk through unsafe neighborhoods even at night today because mm-hmm. mothers and children. Uh, basically seen as, okay, that is a sacred thing. Uh, that's a sacred event that's happening. There's a mother and a child. So when these mothers would actually go and get in the inland where they are coming to get slaves, these are the first women who would go there and say, we come in peace, our husbands are behind, we're just passing by. And, and that's how Swahili now started spreading. So it's not just in the coast. As the caravans were moving, it is the Swahili women who are actually going about. First of all, in the caravan, they are teaching the people they are with Swahili. But as they are going through, they are speaking Swahili in all these places. So all of a sudden, the entire story of Swahili revolves around them. But it's very, very difficult to see it uh, in terms of the kinds of stories that have been written in the past. But language is one thing that always distinguishes, um, can tell you the kind of thing. So you can tell where Arabic is being used is in those high levels I talked about. It's a very yeah. interesting sort of right. dimension, maybe for future scholars to look right. at these you know, gender dimensions of the, of the development of languages. But Absolutely. Uh, I want to ask uh, in a minute about popular culture and Swahili, which you've also done quite splendidly in the book, I think. But uh, when I was speaking of Siti Binti, it reminded me that our colleague Laura Fair, who'd written about Siti Binti in her book uh, some time ago, mm-hmm. recently published in Swahili, I think in Kenya, uh, a slightly different work uh, uh, about her. And it was, um, it was, it was interesting to me because I was chatting a, a few minutes ago at ASA with Walter Bagoya mm-hmm. from DA, you know, the, yes, the yes, founder yes. and uh, steerer of this great uh, publishing house. And the question that I thought about there was, and very briefly, because I want to mm-hmm. move on to popular mm-hmm. culture, but how would you estimate, uh, in short, the, the, um, the state of publishing in, in, in Swahili today? Because the Ngugi Wationgo raised this yeah. question of the fate of African languages and African language publishing. And mm-hmm. from the perspective of Kenya or the, the broader East African region, are, are things improving in terms of, say, scholarly publishing in, in, in Swahili? Because certainly in Nigeria, we still have a problem of getting the meteor scholarly mm-hmm. terms published in, say, Yoruba or Igbo. It's it's just like it is in 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 West Africa. It mm. is the same in East Africa. It's um, I'm very familiar with Gugi's uh, fight, and he has a very laudable position on on what happens. And he's and I'm writing right now. I'm actually writing an essay on uh, responding to a talk he gave at Harvard. He came to uh, give a conf- um, uh, the Neville Alexander Memorial Lecture, which we have. The language program I direct has a conference in the in the in April where we talk about African languages in the disciplines, and when he he, he came there he was um, we were trying to show him what we are really doing with his language and so on. But there, there he has a superior understanding of what it is because you see, um, the big problem is not what is published even in in not in African languages and so on. I am convinced that it is really 
what we are seeing in English coming from Africa that is actually published in English, and this is why I find them to be very strong, those things that are written in English, English is basically most often only a translation of what the indigenous vernaculars have actually provided for knowledge. And so the whole idea that there is a chain, of pro, uh, there is a, a, value, a value production chain in these languages. So in the end, uh, what, what, what am I talking about value production? The best things are coming from our languages. You, you do your study, and when you reach a certain point, for it to be published in Oxford and other places, we live, we, we actually switch languages and come, and come to the other things. So if you think about our constitutions, for instance, which is a book should be published, you know, these languages and so on. I saw it in Kenya. Kenya was advised by South Africa. South Africa, which wrote their wonderful constitution, we have now one in Kenya. And people are sitting under trees discussing what, 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 you know, what the constitution means. and all the, Finally, we ended up with a constitution. Hmm. It's in English. Mm. And now some people are saying, look at how wonderful English is. It's a monument because it fights, it writes our rights down and so on. But what has actually happened is that it's actually a constitution that comes from all these other languages that have actually been brought to us. And the whole notion that basically we're writing for the world to read is, is what is messed up in terms of uh, the way we are here. Because in Africa, who is reading this English is also the elite group and so on. So in short, um, languages like money is what language does. If you publish in a, in a language where everybody doesn't want to read in it, uh, and all the other stuff, then they'll be saying, nice, nice book, and all the other leave it alone. But think about it. We can still read in these things because things like the Bible, which is the most widely read book out there, has a meaning. It has a value to these people, and therefore people read it. But when it comes to Walter, and I'm talking to him because I'm trying to translate story of Swahili into Swahili that he will actually publish because... I've met him several times, and we we actually devastated by the idea that all of us to get our promotions, you know, you have to actually go to a certain presses. It's in Ohio Press, it's in Oxford, it's in uh, this is how we produce things, and so on. But so there is a whole market about publications and other things that actually pertains to this to this kind of thing. Mm -hmm. But in the end, when you really look at the consumption and the way messages are passing around and all this stuff, there is a whole different plane where yeah. local language are doing things. So in other words, it's like we are publishing, but we do not until in the value production chain, we have to actually get it into English so that then it can be appealing to, the, to everybody else in the world. Mm. But Tanzania, for instance, is an embarrassment that Walter can't publish all his books in Swahili because mm. people there are already listening and yeah, ready to read it's, it. It's a big dilemma. But well, let me t turn then Sorry. to the popular culture. And Peter and I were you know, exchanging ideas about Swahili in popular culture. There's you know, the way Hollywood made some Swahili names popular in the north. There's... Mm -hmm. uh, Soap operas in Swahili, hip hop, bongo movies, yeah. sports announcing, text messages, Twitter, and I've been working on African cartoonists, Gado, and others mm -hmm. writing cartoons in in, in, yeah. in Swahili. Uh, there's Sheng, and I was struck by the way you engaged with the the slang, if you like. Um, how have these forms, these genres or subgenres, these manifestations, how have they shaped modern Swahili? The 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 distinction that one has to make with, with African languages is that there is a very, there's a lot of interconnectedness with these languages. In fact, when one language says it has actually ceased to exist, it is actually incorporated in the languages around it. You know, so, so this is a story of Swahili that when you look at Swahili and you start looking at where the sources of words came from, you start finding Kilega, you find all these things there in there. So every language is actually a, co a combination of the languages surrounded because of the way people con make contact and all the other stuff. The popular language, these these languages that are coming up, the Sheng and all the other stuff, is that 
remember they are that because there's always a standard in which everybody is being called to, to, to actually to, to, uh, to adhere to. So uh, we have Sheng. Sheng came about, I grew up speaking it in Nairobi. It grows up because you meet people who speak different languages. You really don't know Swahili. You don't know English, but you have your own language, and therefore you actually make this language that actually um, neutralizes something. Now, you can also study it in the sense of saying, because I, I'm meeting a Maasai, a lower person, and all that, I'm Kikuyu, therefore for us to actually be on the same page and on the same level without preferring anybody's language, you develop this language. These languages are wonderful. They are about communicating everything and, uh, you know, every day and so on. But the problem is, um, as they're doing that, um, then they are becoming, they are seen as a problem in the examination arenas and all the, in the formal institutions. So there is this whole idea that Sheng is the enemy of standard Swahili and standard English because it is always breaking them and so on. And that is, that is one thing. But standard languages are always very parasitic to what is going on around them. So, like, like English. Yeah, like English. It's, it's, and that's what I was saying. Actually, Julius Nyerere said it, that Swahili, English is the Swahili of the world. Use it, take it, and use it anyhow, anyhow that you like, and, and so on. But as you're doing that, in 1997, 98, I don't remember when Gordon Brown was, was prime minister in England, he came out with a video saying he's now giving a new gift to the world, which is English, and he's going to send 750,000 teachers of English to India to actually make sure that India had had English for 200 years. <laughs> so, but you can see, you can understand him. What he's doing is taking the standard one, the one that we actually are in the book, that's the one that they are calling English. So the fight becomes, becomes one like that. Now, when you go to these places, what standard languages do is that when they develop, when, they, when things become very, very conventional and they become de facto, what was a grammatical and a bad word last year becomes the grammatical good word of this year and so on. So these standard languages are made up of foraging from all these languages that are surrounding them. And all of a sudden we add it in a dictionary and therefore they, they, are feeding, they, they are feeding off of these languages. That's what makes Swahili very complex because you look at Swahili then you find every, every East African language is involved in Swahili. But because the, the organizing languages and the organizing tones that are actually organizing us is English and, and Swahili, you'll find there is Swahili English, that we talk about Swanglish, there is Sheng, there is Engsh. Engsh is now the opposite of somebody who, is, who knows English and is trying to actually, so you're trying to make uh, English, I mean, you're trying to use English syntax to speak Swahili. And those things, by the way, that you find in Swahili are mapped over all those languages that you have in there. There's a Maasai way of speaking, and everybody will know you're, you're trying to be an Englishman. And there is an, a way of speaking that shows that you're actually adding things in there. You look at Ngugi Wathiungwa's works, like Murogi Kagogo, the, the Wizard of the Crow. Mm -hmm. It is a consumption. It is like a voracious consumption of all kinds of languages in the place. And when you look at and you can see them. Now, I was asking myself, why did he consume all these languages and put them there? Like, didn't even try to hide that they were coming from other, from English and the Swahili and, Indi and Hindi and so on. But it occurred to me that the concepts he's talking about you don't translate too much. So it was, I mean, I remember there's one he's talking about sexual discrimination. Sexual discrimination, everyone would understand it if you tell them in a language. You can say this is this and that and the other. But when you use sexual discrimination, there's a cachet to that term across the discussion around the world. So that you can, you can hear it in, in Gikuyu, you can hear it in Swahili, you can hear it in all this and, and, and that kind of thing. So my thinking is that the relationship is a, is a healthy one. Mm. But the problem is that there is a vertical plane of language and the horizontal. Mm. The horizontal is daily 
conversations with everybody and you're going meaning making, sense making, life is going on. Then there comes another part which Africans don't do. We learn languages every day. We learn them very well, but we don't do language exams. And when you sit somebody there to write your essay and then determine their university education based on that essay, then that's where the Nguguwa Thiongo is very furious about the kind of things he talks about. But there is immense creativity. I mean, it's, 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 a, it's, it's a wonder for a linguist when you see what we are doing, what, what people are doing with Sheng, uh, with all the new forms that are coming. And even those, they have their verticals and horizontals. It's a Sheng that you can't get in. The Sheng was supposed to be a vertical for parents that we didn't allow them to understand anything that mm, we are saying. Mm-hmm. And then all of a sudden they figure it out, we change it, and we keep on <laughs> playing the game. But that productive element of language is what makes it very, very dynamic. The problem is that it's not the language of intelligence. So very smart kids are doing very well in their sciences but fail their English and their self-expression mm. and so on. And all of a sudden, they're shunted to the low levels of society because they didn't, they didn't do these other things. So those are the politics of language that enter into this. Speaking of the politics of language, in a recent class of mine, uh, I had the pleasure of welcoming our Michigan State colleague, Deongo Nyani, who is an expert, as you know, on Absolutely. endangered African yes. languages, mm-hmm. particularly in East Africa. And he told my students recently about how Kiswahili's dominance in Tanzania in particular, where mm-hmm. it's the national language and the language of school, of church, increasingly the home, has contributed to both a lack of institutional support for smaller la- local languages, um, but also put some at risk of disappearing entirely. Uh, many of them now borrow heavily from Kiswahili. So what can you tell us about this unintended effect of Swahili's popularity in East Africa, and what might happen to this linguistic trend in the near future? So language is um, what language does. So so long as these small languages don't have a function that is actually seen as worth dying for, then the trend continues because people vote with their feet. Uh, You're being told every day, speak this kind of Swahili because you become like Professor Ngonyan. You know, when you learn this Swahili and you learn English well and so on, you become like Professor Mugane. You become. This is what people are seeing. So this, and then they are, they are tangible, they are tangible awards from this. So everybody is seeing that that is the way forward. When you go back and say, really, we are smart because of our native languages. What we do is a mechanism of translation. These these ideas don't work very well, and they're not planned for. So when you talk about a language p- policy in a country. Uh, it's not about the idea of, of, of looking after these languages. But also, when you go looking for money to go and actually save a, uh, save a language, it's actually, that's actually, you're starting to plan the end of that language because it doesn't have a function. Yes, you're going to find old people, you're going to find young people, you're going to record them. But if there is nothing the language is doing, then it doesn't do very much. In Kenya, uh, we, we've seen there are some places you can't trade, uh, even, uh, not even in Kenya, in West Africa too. There are places you can't go and actually live without actually knowing how. If you go to Kenya's Eastlands east, east and you go to Isli, it's a Somali enclave. It's a, it's got, it's, they say it's got billions and billions of shillings economy right there in Nairobi. So when you go there, the Somali, of course, you can't speak their language immediately. They are speaking their thing and you're speaking yours and you actually make your own uh, a different kind of sheng. Sheng is doesn't have to have English, you just make your own kind of conversation and so on because languages are there for pragmatic reasons for all of us. It's for me to communicate and get my thing done. I'm not even remembering I'm learning. I mean, I'm I'm even learning your language. I'm just trying to get something done. And so by the time I look at it and I'm saying the next thing is 
grade five, grade seven, there is an exam, a national exam. You have to pass it in this and all the other stuff. And the school system itself is basically busy caning children for speaking their own language and so on. There is no intrinsic value that is actually visible for these people until you grow old and become a certain point and say, wait a minute. I was learning and I could not understand anything because we were being taught in the formal language. And, and that's even a stretch. That's in a good school. Maybe the teacher knew the language. In a lot of these places, the teacher doesn't even know it. Tanzania has reached a point whereby it has Swahili uh, being spoken almost in a standard way across the place, except for the, for the various um, accents that one might have. But over there, one has to actually go then and give the rationale for the language to exist. And that's where the challenge is. If you can go somewhere and say, okay, language... Um, if I go somewhere and, like, if I want to trade in Northeast and if I want to trade with people and all of a sudden they're speaking their language and there's no way I can get through them, then basically I'll learn, I'll learn the language. And that's what was happening, even the Swahili notion about the Swahili being a Bantu language. The Europeans really say they're going to use it for the whole of Africa. They're just going to go speaking Swahili wherever they go and, and basically ignore the other language because people can get the meaning. It is a very, so Professor Ngonyan is right. Uh, people are going to vote with their feet. And even government in, 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 in interruption of, of the process uh, will not help unless there are real tangible ways of saying that this language actually exists uh, for a reason. They, languages are not existing because of language policies. It is that people don't know how to speak their language, so their language persists. We've been saying these languages are dying for decades, but they're still persisting, not because that they're not dying. It is because the people who are speaking them can hardly access English, they can hardly access the standard Swahili. So you end up, you're trading your language and then you're going to actually the pigeonized form or something of, of a language and so on. And in the end, um, you have some of these languages getting lost. But for me, I don't think, when people vote with their feet and languages die out, I'm not so concerned about that because you vote with your feet. Your language, if you're speaking, if you're speaking Somali here, if you're speaking Somali and Borana, and Borana gets lost, they have a lot of words in common and all the other stuff. So the story of Swahili, you look at it like and you say, we lost these languages. But then you look at the intestines of Swahili and you find all these languages are actually stored in there. So the thing I don't like is the one that we have in school systems where you can children to you know, speak their language. So it's like this is all bludgeoning of the language mm -hmm. out of them. Mm -hmm. But to stop it um, without giving it a function would be another thing. So if, I, if you found a product that could work, it's a good thing. And that's where... Um, it's being maintained in 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 uh, in, uh, in, uh, in the sharing form more than anything. Well, I'm sure we could we we could, and I'd love to, to we could talk all day on these fascinating yeah. subjects. Yeah. But it's being but maybe we can bring the discussion to a conclusion with two brief okay. final points and one on teaching and one on the digital. And you're okay. involved in both uh, yes. in, in in very productive ways. And uh, and. Um, I'm going to ask the same question uh, tomorrow to uh, Boston University colleague Fellow and Gom, but mm -hmm. what are the challenges to and benefits of teaching and learning African languages today in the US? And how is it, in a way, is that situated at ASA? I was wondering, as, as you were talking, how mm. many panels have we ever heard at ASA delivered in Swahili? Um, it's very telling, isn't it? I mean, it's very, very uh, telling. Uh, and, and that's why I was so thrilled to hear you talking the proverbs through there in Swahili. But in a way, you could say, why not? Um, if you give a paper in Paris, you're likely right. to give it in French. Mm -hmm. or if you give a paper in Japan, it's likely to be right. in Japanese. But what about these challenges and benefits of, of, of teaching and learning African languages here in the U.S.? And, 
and, and how could we situate this within ASA? That's a good question because I deal with that a lot because I have a language program that has, we teach, we've taught 45 languages and we're teaching about 20, 24 every semester of these languages. And one of the things about the benefits of it is that, first of all, it's from very many levels. You have to develop a different kind of pedagogy of learning these languages. You have to develop a different kind of argumentation than the one that is actually available in the modern languages. You have to look at it in a very creative and 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 and, and uh, nuanced way about how actually one is benefiting from this. So, one, I go to Harvard because they decide to establish the Africa Studies track, and the first thing they said is that we need an African language program. So we go there, and why do we need an African language program? Because they're saying ASA, and that's what I have sa been saying in the few conferences I've come here to talk, uh, saying you cannot, for all intents and purposes, convince us that you are the expert in in, um, in Amharic uh, life domesticity and, and in Maasai or whatever, I mean, uh, or in Kisi soapstone uh, carvings and all the other stuff, and then you confess you can't actually have a conversation with anybody in that language. These are some of the things that have been disturbing us quite a bit. And we realized when we ask the questions ourselves, people are not receptive to them. If it's John Mugane and Falun Gong, we, I mean, Professor Ngom and me, we, the guys who actually ask these things, we, are, we have self-interest. But over the 12 years I've been at Harvard, we've educated more than 3,000 students, and I send them with one question that I call the Mugane question. Not to self-promote, but it is my, my, my quarrel with, or my intervention to say to everybody who, la who talks about Africa and writes about Africa, there is a question you have to answer, and that is, do you speak in the language of the people that you write about? And that's where the, the importance of doing these languages is. Now, for the last seven years, with support from Professor Ngom as well, from BU, from Boston University, we have been having African languages in the disciplines conference. And the question we're asking everybody is, what is it, you to come to the conference and tell us what it is that they learned on Africa, in their research in anthropology, you know, I don't want linguists to show up, I don't want language teachers to show up. This is about the disciplines and, and those have particular things that they actually do and they have conferences. This one is, what couldn't you possibly learn? To the professional, what could it you possibly do? No, for what could it you possibly learn? I've had anthropologists and historians saying you can't begin to say anything about Africa if you don't know how to speak these languages. Professional schools, HIV AIDS was, was actually, and, and Ebola virus, and all these other things were actually vernacular dependent. And so we are saying there is no work that can be done in Africa without these things. Now, are these African languages learnable? That is a question we've been answering. And of that army of 3,000 students going out there saying, when somebody, some people have tried to come and say, Kinyarwanda is too difficult, learn Swahili. One of my students shows up, stands up, who is an American from, from, from Wisconsin, just stands up and says, but I speak it directly. And he does. You know? So he says, no, you can't just decide languages are too difficult to whatever. But the last thing I'll tell you about languages is that basically you don't learn one language because you have many languages. Um, my method has always been learn how to learn languages. So don't learn one. Learn, look at African style. Learn languages African style, not the modern language style where you have to actually do them in prisonality. It's by the way, if you're, if you're learning languages sitting down, you should get a life. You should actually go out there, try to, do, to solve a problem, and you'll come speaking the language if the problem is worthwhile. Congratulations again on the book. And Dr. John Magani, thanks very much for talking to ASA Podcasts and Africa Past and Present. Thank you very much. I really enjoyed this, and I'm hoping that you do many, many more of these as much as we can on Africa. It will be wonderful. Thank you.
Africa Past and Present is a co-production of Matrix, the Center for Digital Humanities and Social Sciences, and the Department of History at Michigan State University. Technical assistance is provided by the Matrix Digital Media Lab. For more information and to subscribe to the podcast, visit our website at afropod.aodl.org. The podcast is also available on iTunes. You can also send us email at africa.podcast at matrix.msu.edu. Thanks for listening.